0: Years before its time, Walt Disney and the talents of a thousand craftsmen bring to the screen all the wonders of Fantasia. With Leopold Stokowski and the Philadelphia Orchestra, a whole new world of entertainment. An experience to cherish in your heart and memory forever. Forever.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Whose Filmography Is It Anyway? This week, we continue our exploration into the Disney Golden Age of Animation with Fantasia. As always, with me is my co-host and friend, Josh Page.
2: Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, as always, for another lovely introduction. This is uh, wonderful being here. Uh, We made it. We made it to Fantasia, a film that is... uh, Highly regarded as many, many things. Um, yes. and Yeah, it is a doozy, as we've said. <laughs> as we've had many doozies in the past.
1: This, uh, I hope you uh, remember to bring your gummy or whatever you do to get you through. But this is just uh, some wild stuff.
2: The Sour Patch Kids, I prefer. Just a little...
1: <laughs> Those aren't the kind of gummies I'm talking about.
2: Well, I'm talking about the extra Sour Patch Kids, you know, the ones that are... First they're sour,
1: then they're sweet. Then
2: they're sweet. Then then they're sweet. And then, whoa, the wall's melting, and how did we get here? My couch turned into a cat, and here we are. Not
1: that I would recommend such a gummy, but I can't say that it hurts uh, when watching this
2: No, no, especially something like this. You know, it's good to have those extra Sour Patch Kids. But I digress. Um, Yes, we we made it.
1: (laughs) We made it. This is a quite a movie. And actually, from what I recall, it's one of Spielberg's favorite movies. That's In true. In fact, it might be one of his favorite movie, which is strange to me. Uh, I have
2: to, to fact check that, but I do recall him saying something along those lines.
1: Yeah, which is kind of strange to me, because I don't know if this seems like any kind of movie he would ever make, which fascinates me
2: maybe that's what he likes about it it's the kind of thing that he would never do and so it's kind of like he admires it for what it is but although he
1: uh, is doing a musical so
2: oh boy oh a oh, oh west about the west side <laughs> story of the west side that we have heard many times i forget i always forget that that's a thing but
1: those jets of those sharks are at it again oh boy so um you ready to just jump right into the movie
2: yeah, I mean I want to say so much but let's 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 do it our, the way we usually do. We'll There's definitely the a usual. lot to say about this yeah. one. Yeah, for sure. So and I'll, I'll let quite you take sure it. Away.
1: We uh, we'll say well, it all. Well, maybe uh, not yes. at all.
2: And as always, uh this was uh, you know, for the backstories, this is one of the many films I Disney films I had on VHS as a child. Um, as well,
1: but I'll be completely honest, I didn't really appreciate this movie until much later in my I life, I don't,
2: and we'll, you know, as always, we'll tease the final thoughts. But it's kind of like I think this is that's going to be most children. I can't imagine many children who would who would, you know, be able to have the experience to appreciate it that you would when you're like older. This and is
1: a. Between or movie, kind of like you're gonna love this movie when you're an infant or like a two year old, and then you're gonna be like, What the fuck am I watching when you're five to like <laughs> I want to say 14, 15, and then maybe you'll go, Wow, wait a minute! Wait yeah, a minute.
2: yeah, it's like, one of those, um, it's one of those movies that like I, just, like I have a very distinct memory of a lot of Disney movies just from watching them growing up. I can remember specific, you know, scenes and, and visuals and like the way the stories happen. And yet, Fantasia was always the one that, like, I had trouble recalling because I knew I could see the visuals, you know, the hippos and the Demon Ball Mountain and the brooms and, and the mushrooms. But like, it's so much of it, like, I couldn't really recall because there's so much happening. But it's also because of the there's not really a narrative, so it's a very, it's easily one of the most experimental movies that Disney's ever done. Yeah. Um, but we'll talk
1: about that right now actually as we Uh jump into production let's do it so walt disney said that perhaps bach and beethoven are strange bedfellows for mickey mouse but it's been a whole but it's been a lot of fun so bedfellows bedfellows he's bedfellows (laughs) with mickey mouse so the movie actually came about because mickey mouse was very like he was relevant he's like world famous at this point this is 1940 literally every disney has always been good at marketing from the mm-hmm. beginning literally if you were to show up in china in 1940 someone would be able to tell you who mickey mouse was but the character was floundering like um he became an icon but he didn't have any character anymore
2: well wasn't it it was ste- the steamboat um
1: steamboat willie in 1928 is that's when he how launched mickey mouse
2: and then I don't really know what really Mickey was between that period and this. He was
1: period. in a lot of shorts and stuff, but he kind of hit the same problem. And this is a point that uh, Neil Gabler in his book, Walt Disney, touches on. And Walt Disney actually talked to Charlie Chaplin about this, which must have been mind-blowing for Walt. Because as I said, Tra- Chaplin was like a childhood hero of his. Uh but they talked about the characters because Mickey was based off of Charlie Chaplin at Charlie Chaplin's The Kid. Mm -hmm. And they both hit the same roadblock where there's only so many misadventures a character like them can get into because everything always seems to work out for them. And they have to be like oblivious, but in command, but not really like, they need to just be generally good and bland people. That's who they are. So mm-hmm. there's only so much you could do with that. Uh, so Walt came up with an idea to put classical music behind Mickey Mouse. This is before Looney Tunes did it. So this was like a kind of a revolutionary idea. He was He wanted to put classical music behind Mickey Mouse. And by happenstance, I don't know if a meeting was really set up or not. But Walt Disney claimed that by accident, he ran into Leopold Stokowski, who is the director, uh, conductor in this movie. He ran into him by accident at Chasen's restaurant in Hollywood. And the two had dinner together. Well, their wives were there, but they had dinner together. And Walt pitched the idea of Sorcerer's Apprentice behind Mickey Mouse. And Leopold said, I want to conduct it.
2: So that's Um, how it started. That's how it started. As always, it starts with a dinner and the meeting of the minds, you know?
1: Well, let's take a step back. Leopold Stokowski should be noted that he is like the icon of classical music in that age. This isn't like some small conductor. This is like, I don't, I'm not a huge classical music person, so I'm going to use a different analogy. This is like John Williams running into steven spielberg you know
2: no oh, yeah of course it's it's, it's it's um it it's a theme that i think will continue as we'll say but like the the conjoined um elements of music and film and this or animation it's just animation and music is is astounding because it's like they go so hand in hand you know
1: yeah leopold um, sakowski uh recorded the sorcerer's apprentice music in at Path Studios in Culver City in 1938. It was just a massive undertaking. It was a hundred person band. They recorded from 12 a.m. to 3 a.m. And Roy Disney had to pull Walt aside because this was costing a shit ton of money. Mm. And Roy had to tell him, Walt, this is a short movie. Like you are never gonna make your money back if you're spending millions of dollars on just a band for a single recording. And so Walt said, well then let's make a concert feature.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was I feel
1: the like, uh, walk, which was the title of this movie for quite some time, the concert feature. But go
2: it's on. no, I'm sorry to interrupt. I feel like it was almost um similar to the Snow White conversation, where it's like they're telling one person, like, hey, this idea is kind of impossible. No one is going to want to watch this, no one's going to buy into this. And then there's the one you know, the one person, you know, be it or whoever really it was um saying like no no we need to stand by this idea this is going to work and it's just funny because it's like this is another kind of revolutionary gap
1: that's why Walt Disney is still talked about today because you look at some of these bold people who just jump at the chance at opportunities presented before them like Steve Jobs you know he would go out there and say you know what let's do something bold let's really throw a curveball out there and it's just very rare these days to see something like that
2: no and i mean because of the media and the internet i mean i I use it as an example because it's given so it's opened so many doors for creative minds and it's a positive thing in that element but it's also difficult for the eccentric geniuses to be like hey let's do something different because if you search the corners of the internet i mean it's hard to find something that hasn't really been done before in a new invigorating way at least in the media i mean we haven't really seen anything like to a revolutionary standpoint uh, in the way that ideas were happening in film. The way well, that they were back they're then. they're in right? tech now, right?
1: Yeah, like I don't like Facebook, but I'll give credit where credit is due. Mark Zuckerberg oh, is one of those geniuses. Technically, yeah, of,
2: of course. I only use different the word, genius
1: you know likely no he is
2: he's definitely a, by the books a genius but it was despite anyone's opinions on him it, it's just but yeah that's you're right that's where it's kind of going it's going more tech side and that kind of i guess began with steve jobs but
1: so anyway walt went back to the studio and started talking about this concert feature with his animators which if walt is talking to his animators about it it means it's happening yeah story conferences started taking place uh Walt it was a small group with Walt Dean Taylor who was a composer at the time he's the MC in Fantasia the guy who introduces each segment mm-hmm. he he was brought in Leopold Stokowski and Walt Disney would sit in the sit in a room and listen to music just endlessly for 3 weeks in 1938 they would do this and just while they're listening to music, they would pitch ideas back and forth. And and apparently there was one instance where Walt had to like lower the music because it was just getting too loud and his animators were outside working. And Mm -hmm. Leopold Stokowski yelled at him saying, if the conductor wanted the music low, he would have conducted it low. You cannot turn the music down.
2: (laughs) I mean, it's, it's... It's true how the, the marriage of the, of the music and the, and the animation is so, um, I mean, it's so poignant because it's like, it's one of, the, it's, I mean, you could argue that the, the music or the songs in Disney movies are just as important as the animation, but it's really like, it's almost like they're really, it's not even that they're equals, like I almost feel like the, the, the music is completely overpowering over everything else it's very it's very interesting and these kind of stories kind of like you know uh, hold that to be true in my mind it's kind of like no matter what it's like all these stories about the music um even them listening for hours and having discussions about it it's just proof that it's just like yeah you could throw in songs here and there but in, the, in this situation it's kind of like no the music has to kind of come first
1: it would have been amazing to be in the room while they were pitching ideas back and forth like that
2: oh my would be- god
1: amazing you know to hear a dialogue to be in the room where it happened like
2: (laughs) that would be amazing going back and forth about what it needs to be and what it doesn't need to be and and just um, like
1: that raw creative energy just flying back and forth you know and this is like i'm romanticizing it in my head but it's probably like disgusting in the moment it's like three or you know it's a bunch of like artists in a room sweating and smoking and just like staying up all hours of the night like pitching these artistic crazy ideas back and forth like what if these dinosaurs were doing the rite of spring you know like <laughs> how crazy would that be i would
2: love to see as we've said uh i don't remember what it might have been the first episode i think it was the Snow White episode that we were saying the the idea of the movie or the show about the behind the scenes of disney and that would be like the crazy uh busy boss you know what i mean and that would be one of those like things that would be one of the episodes this is him in the room with these big wigs and they all know their music and stuff and they're all sitting there and they're just kind of you know smoking cigars or funny cigarettes or whatever and they're kind of having these
1: part about this whole thing this was the 40s this is not when like (laughs) <laughs> what did you say For funny cigarettes or yeah, yeah, yeah as they would probably be referred to in uh, the 40s jazz yeah. cigarettes um, <laughs> the reefer stick
2: um, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: That, that wasn't like big really in the 40s no. I, I, no, mean, no, no, I wasn't no. there but it wasn't like as widespread so like to come up with these ideas they were probably drunk as shit just like in a room, sweating it out, like pitching ideas back and forth. Going. It's got to be
2: something because you can tell. I mean, again, you know, not to say that drugs or alcohol or substance or whatever it is. Um, not to say that those are the forefront, but it's like some of this deals in the animation. There's a reason that like it's become a widely popular movie among hippies and people who, whatever, who do smoke weed or whatever who or people and i mean it's really for anybody but it's just to come up with these visuals and to come up with these ideas you have to wonder what these conversations were like
1: yeah so i'm good we josh and i will talk about uh individual segments as we keep going and we'll talk about more behind the scenes stuff as we keep going but just one thing i wanted to mention was that each cell took three to four hours to draw that is 1 24th of a frame. Uh, 1 24th of a second took 3 to 4 hours to paint. That is insane. It's wild. Uh, um, so let's talk about the sound real quick because this is crazy. Leopold Stokowski went back to Philadelphia to record the music. Uh, but when they recorded the music they did it on this thing called Fanta Sound, which is a new sound uh, system that Disney was creating for this specific movie. It's what we would now call stereophonic sound. You know, you can cut sound left, right, center. You cut, it's surround sound essentially. And Walt only wanted this to be seen like that. Like with the beautiful ser- sound and the best way possible. So, cause he called this a roadside attraction. Mm-hmm. He would, He wanted to bring the movie to each place because there were only like 16 copies of the movie made or something. Uh, but in order to do that, RKO said, no, like, we're not doing that. That's like too much of an investment. We're not going to make our money back. That, that's just not going to happen because RKO was the distributor of the film at that point. Right. So Disney decided, fuck it, I'm going to do it myself. Mm-hmm. So he would go or he would send his people to theaters around the country to put in the correct sound system, the correct lighting system. He even hired the right ushers for this movie because it was an event. You had to book mm-hmm. tickets in advance
0: mm-hmm. and
1: like you were given a program. This is like the craziness of it.
2: It's the closest that, I mean, the way you're describing it, it's the closest that you that you get to seeing a Disney play in the form of an animated movie, like to see it as like a Broadway show almost.
1: We'll talk a little bit more about this later, but when I say he called it the concert feature, that's literally what he saw it as. This is like a concert. You were paying to see like a concert and to put everything in properly, each theater cost $85,000, which in, this is back in nineteen forty. Like that's 1940
2: money, eighty five thousand dollars. Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, you you, for inflammation, it's (laughs) yeah, it's quite a uh, quite a bit of uh, pretty pennies. But it's the kind of uh, event that I feel like we've seen in the latter day, like in our generation, that it's the kind of thing, and I've probably done it, where you'd almost imagine what it'd be like to see this movie on the big screen. With an or- actual orchestra pit, like uh, with the way they've amazing. done with, like the way they've done with Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you ever heard of that. They've done that. No, I
1: went to the Star Wars one.
2: Oh, that's awesome! So if they, but if they did something like that for this, where you have a live orchestra with the movie, like that's something I feel like people It'd would be, actually pay money for.
1: Well, not in COVID times, but in normal times,
2: yeah. Obviously, well, <laughs> in the before times.
1: In the before times, that would have been fucking but
2: amazing. This is the this is the exact kind of movie for that kind of vision.
1: Absolutely. So the reception was mixed. Uh, Film critics loved it. Music critics, not so much. Uh, Newspapers sent both critics because they didn't know necessarily how to classify this. And the movie crashed and burned at the box office. Uh, But it wasn't a shock because, like I said, there were only 16 prints made, and in order to show this movie, you needed to have the Disney sound system put in uh, It ran for a year in New York, LA and San Francisco, big cities, but other than that, it fizzled and burned. and Walt liked to blame World War II because at this point, World War II had broken out in Europe. not the United States was not involved yet, but that cut his market in, like by a lot. Because no one in the outside mar overseas market could see it, and at that point they were the biggest market. Uh,
2: so I do think it was a mixture of things. I don't mean I don't know if you had more notes on that. Before no, go start. for it. But I, I think it's a it's one of those things. Like yeah, like I studied when I studied uh, film in college. There was a whole we there, like, there were tons of discussion pieces and like papers that we had to like write and whatnot about like post World War film like how war impacted you know film noir and all that and so like there's a legitimate element to that um blaming the war for the box office numbers i think is like it's it's both like i said it's both legitimate but i also think this is another one of those things where an it's 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 just an experimental project that wouldn't be until it gains like a cult following later which would later become like a ginormous following because everything I was reading about this movie insinuated that it was something that was not appreciated until way after the fact.
1: No, we'll talk about that in just a minute. Because of how bad the money was, Walt went back to RKO and said, okay, I'll play by your rules. And they cut the 124-minute original version to 88 minutes and dubbed it the popular version, which was released world into uh, more theaters. They took out all of the Dean Stanton introducing the stuff. They they butchered the movie, from what I've read and what from what I've gathered. This movie, this movie's reception really just like broke Walt.
2: Like yeah, yeah, I can imagine.
1: After this, it's really never the same. I'm not saying that what came after isn't good. I'm just saying that after this, the movies have a different feeling to them. All of them. And Walt, his focus shifted away from animation after this movie. I feel like after this movie, you know, kind of like Steve Jobs, these kinds of people only thrive when they are hitting new levels of artistic achievement, and then to have your artistic achievement rebuffed and smacked out of your hand and cut down to 88 minutes, like that's a hard pill to swallow. Uh-huh. So I feel like after this, Walt just kind of broke down a little bit?
2: Well, it's very interesting because I feel like history tends to repeat itself in Steve Jobs, but you can really say it about anyone, including Mark Zuckerberg. But it's kind of like this idea that if you're an enigmatic, whether you're a genius or, or, or an artist or whatever it is, or, or a technical wizard or, you know, whatever the term is, is that if you come up with like a groundbreaking idea be it for art or media or technology. And it's kind of like you introduce it to the public and it catches, right? You get this idea where it's kind of more people want want to invest in this idea. And then you get this too many uh, cooks situation where it's kind of like the artist keeps wanting to put out their vision of where they want this future to go with their project. And then either the media doesn't respond well, the public doesn't respond well. Um, And then what happens is the artist kind of like, either kind of has to change and go along with what the people want and what like the world wants, or they kind of just kind of walk away. And it's just funny that in their own way, not that Walt walked away, but it's just funny that you kind of see, I feel like that's a very
1: uh, common trend. Let's add another couple contexts to this conversation too, because look at, I'm not defending Walt in any way, because uh, we'll talk, we'll touch on this a lot next episode. But this is around the same time that Disney animate the Disney Studio goes on strike, which you know he's having his artistic license rebuffed by the public. The people within his company who he thought were like his loyal employees are rebelling against him too, and the war, the world is literally at war. So. Everything around him is like crashing in. And I just feel like psychologically it threw him into a different course. Mm-hmm. But let's move on. Uh, you know, let's talk about one more thing and then we'll get into the movie. Sure. This movie, like I said, was a concert feature and was going to originally be treated as such if it had been a hit. Walt originally wanted Fantasia to be in theaters essentially forever and he would take certain segments of the movie and replace them with a different segment of the movie. Like he mm-hmm. had different animation segments in his mind already brewing. They had a couple of them actually ready. They did a ride of the Valkyries. They did Swan of uh, Toulay, Claire de like de Lune, sorry. Um, mm-hmm. They already had a couple animations lined up to uh, replace a couple of them already in the movie that was his plan to make it literally like a concert you go to the theater and you don't know what you're about to like watch or listen to yeah
2: no it's 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 certainly and again not to tease the final thoughts but it's like it's certainly um it's certainly an experience it's like it's it's something it's something that you can't even quite describe with words you kind of just it's one of those things you kind of have to see and hear for your stuff yeah um, there's just really no, there's really nothing like it, and I'll I mean I'll I'll come back to that. At
1: well, the end. let's uh, get into the movie now, shall we?
2: Let's do it. Do it up.
1: Before we even get into the first musical number, let's just talk about the very opening, mm-hmm. where it's the silhouettes of the pit setting I love their it. instruments up. It was so beautiful.
2: It's very unique because it's the, I mean, the mix of live action and animation was cool, but it's also just, yeah, you're really, you're literally setting the stage because you almost feel like that's something that naturally shouldn't be part of the movie, but they clearly wanted it as part of the experience. Like you're, they're almost preparing you, you know? What's
1: crazy is there is a, you know, like you said, a mix of live action and animation, but at the same time, we don't actually see Many live-action people. They try and cut no. around it as much as they possibly can. Mm-hmm. So the opening easily could have been animation, but it was. It's but that's what makes it so interesting. You know, it's literally live live-action that they're filming.
2: And while we're on it, because I know we'll make notes about each segment, but it's the apparently the orchestra that appears in the segments uh, of the film is not actually. The Philadelphia Orchestra, but a collection of local Hollywood musicians and Disney Studio employees. Um, so cool. it's a, a mix of a couple of names, you know what I mean? And just like, and if you look it up, there's like some, I guess, people at the time who were, you know, either working working for the studio um, or a couple, you know, famous people, I guess. So, um, so I thought that was a cool little bit. But
1: it was probably easier just to get uh, employees to do it than yeah.
2: <laughs> absolutely.
1: So let's move into the first song
0: what you're going to see are the designs and pictures and stories that music inspired in the minds and imaginations of a group of artists in other words these are not going to be the interpretations of trained musicians which i think is all of the good now there are three kinds of music on this fantasia program first is the kind that tells a definite story then there's the kind that while it has no specific plot does paint a series of more or less definite pictures then there's a third kind music that exists simply for its own sake now the number that opens our Fantasia program the Toccata and Fugue is music of this third kind what we call absolute music even the title has no meaning beyond a description of the form of the music what you will see on the screen is a picture of the various abstract images that might pass through your mind if you sat in a concert hall listening to this music At first, you're more or less conscious of the orchestra. So our picture opens with a series of impressions of the conductor and the players. Then the music begins to suggest other things to your imagination. They might be, oh, just masses of color, or they may be cloud forms, or great landscapes, or vague shadows, or geometrical objects floating in space. So now we present the Takata and Fugue in D minor by Johann Sebastian Bach.
1: So this one was always meant to be an abstract piece of art. It was based off of Oscar Fischinger, a German artist, like his artwork style. And apparently the animators made the animation to look too much like Oscar's work. And Walt yeah. hated it. So oh, really? he had them put more realism into the movie are into this segment, which is still wild because this move, segment is just, like, very experimental.
2: It's, ver- it's very unique. But, uh, yeah, um... but he,
1: Walt, wanted, like, the opening of this segment is, like, a blend of the silhouettes of the instruments with, uh, you know, jumping lines and blimps. But you see the bow of a, you know, cello and the pushing up of a trombone mixed in with this experimental stuff
2: this is arguably not not not, i don't even i'm not i was gonna say arguably my favorite but one of my favorite bits i don't know there's something about seeing it seeing the i mean like we've just been saying i don't want to run around circles but like seeing the musicians and seeing the silhouettes and seeing the colors it's like it puts you in it's almost like um not quite like blue man group but it's kind of like seeing them you know do it in an experimental kind of way that's with the colors it's like it feels very stagey um but it's not like you're just sitting there on a fixed image of the band members you're kind of and with the music and just the way the colors contrast is amazing
1: i feel like they almost saw the pot movement coming because to watch this (laughs) like to open your movie like this like you know your audience before it even like came out because if you go to this movie stoned not that i would ever do such a thing um but if you were to like go to this movie stone this is the first segment your mind is like whoa just it's like head- whoa. yeah
2: it's like, a- whoa how did i get here it's very ahead of its time for multiple reasons
1: yeah i don't know what else to say too much about nah, it
2: it's a great way of setting
0: the stage
1: So, then let's move on to the Nutcracker Suite.
0: You know, it's funny how wrong an artist can be about his own work. Now, the one composition of Tchaikovsky's that he really detested was his Nutcracker Suite, which is probably the most popular thing he ever wrote. It's a series of dances taken out of a full-length ballet called The Nutcracker that he once composed for the St. Petersburg Opera House. It wasn't much of a success, and nobody performs it nowadays, but I'm pretty sure you'll recognize the music of the suite when you hear it. Incidentally, uh, you won't see any Nutcracker on the screen. There's nothing left of him but the title.
1: Art Babbitt was the lead animator. He oversaw the production of this actual segment, but his contribution were the dancing mushrooms.
2: Which... Again, bo- again, you know, ahead of its time. If you're talking about the drug, <laughs> the drug movement. Um, um, yeah. <laughs>
1: That, hold, but uh, let's just finish with the production, and then we'll get into the actual dancing mushrooms. The painting, the scene was more rig, was like rigorous. This was like the hardest thing to do uh, because they wanted to add layers of like different paint layers onto the cells. So like they had parts of it where air things were airbrushed, and then they would take it away and then dry brush it, and they wanted to keep adding texture to each frame which is crazy anyway let's talk about the actual segment it starts with like fairies awakening flowers dancing mushrooms dancing flowers you go underwater for a bit it's like some wild fucking shit
2: it's very interesting because it's kind of it's them playing with visuals like almost like the concept of like a music video before a music video it's like they're just playing with the concept of just a complete visual perspective but obviously you know the animation is flowing to the music. So it's
1: fascinating about this is it's obviously about the changing of the seasons from one to the next. Mm -hmm. And it's supposed to also like maintain a ballet status and it has like a very flowing ballet kind of movement. Like there's a segment that we're going to talk about later, which is pure ballet. This feels more like, I don't know, like a gliding ballet. It's not like a hundred percent a ballet, but you know, you feel Um... the rhythm the whole time
2: well there's a reason that nutcracker suite and it's been well that's I what mean, we're talking about exactly and there's a reason that it's that the nutcracker is known for being like a very showy ballet kind of scene it's always you know full of just this um a very i'm it's very difficult for me to even describe um you know, when
1: you get to the mushrooms and doing the literal but, like russian dances it's like pretty what
2: else what i'll say is that the way the animation flows because i this is a, a point as we're going along it's coming to mind soon, is the way the, the animation flows with the music is very interesting because like the nutcracker suite is like between the fairies and the mushroom, it's like everything kind of moves at a specific flowy rhythm it's like i can't saying. yeah but it's like kind of like because you get to certain other um animated sequences where like the characters move in different ways, and the well, characters... that's
1: exactly what I'm saying. You know, there's yeah. a segment we're going to talk about later that is pure ballet. This has yeah. kind of a like gliding sensation, like you're literally gliding through the seasons, yeah. yeah. And on the way, you take these little breaks into like specific types of foliage or underwater yeah, yeah. adventure. You know, like you have the mushrooms doing the Russian dancing. Uh-huh. even though they don't really look like mushrooms, to be completely honest. Art Babbitt must have had some other things on his mind. Um, <laughs> but then you have, like, the underwater fish dancing, and it's like their tails are enmeshed in one another, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just so beautifully done, like everything blending so perfectly, mm-hmm. and I don't know.
2: Well, you sound like you've nailed it. Didn't uh not going to step on your toes. <laughs> No, it's good, though. That's the whole thing, though, because it's really showing that this isn't a normal... Uh, this is not, by any means, a normal animated uh, film, you know? No,
1: this is, this is like, next-level stuff. Even from what we've been watching, Pinocchio had a meticulous nature to it, but this just feels like every frame is its own piece of art. Literally, well, you could take yeah. any frame of this movie and hang it on the wall.
2: It's really... And it's, what I'm noticing is, like, it's just... When you think about it, it's like everything is moving, so it's kind of like where Snow White and Pinocchio are these like still frame backdrops where they were like painted, like these painted backdrops, and then they'd have the characters, even when they were moving, it was a very still background where like you're looking at this and it's like every frame is just constantly moving. This must have been um, a real challenge to animate.
1: Yeah, no, you bring up a good point, but this is why talking about the multi-plane camera a couple of weeks ago was so important because mm-hmm. that helped us significantly with this without that tool, you can't have backgrounds and things moving with that. You were able to at least film like somewhat normally, you know? Yeah.
2: I mean, I just have the little, I have the little window up while we're talking about it of the suite and literally every frame is just moving. Even when the characters, not just the characters, but the background, everything is constant. Nothing stays still. And, um, it just makes you realize how, how, how difficult it must have been in the 1940s to, to put this thing to get on paper
1: yeah so let's move into the next segment
0: and now we're going to hear a piece of music that tells a very definite story as a matter of fact in this case the story came first and the composer wrote the music to go with it it's a very old story one that goes back almost 2,000 years a legend about a sorcerer who had an apprentice He was a bright young lad, uh, very anxious to learn the business. As a matter of fact, he was a little bit too bright, uh, because he started practicing some of the boss's best magic tricks before learning how to control them. Uh, One day, for instance, when he'd been told by his master to carry water to fill a cauldron, he had the brilliant idea of bringing a broomstick to life to carry the water for him. Well, this worked very well at first. Unfortunately, however, having forgotten the magic formula that would make the broomstick stop carrying the water, he found he'd started something he couldn't finish.
2: The most famous and well-known sequence of this entire thing.
1: I don't know if that's true, I, but it's definitely, but this is obviously the one that launched this I entire mean,
2: movie. With Sorcerer Mickey, I mean, everyone knows that image. They also slapped that's him true. on all the, all the movies that we had growing up. There was him with the little hand up, and then the little swirl would come out of his hand, and it would spell out this that was old school but i just feel like as far as visual appearance sorcerer mickey's just even if people who aren't familiar with at least know that image
1: let's talk about uh who's behind that that would be fred moore he was the lead animator on this one and he is the one who really changed the shape of mickey mouse because there if you ever want to go back uh in 1928 Mickey Mouse looks very different than he does in this movie.
2: What's wild is that they changed Mickey's image drastically, and the image has not changed ever since. This is the Mickey Mouse that stuck for for the a while. Of time. They
1: changed him now. They've re- they've changed him again.
2: I'm not referring to the the CGI, uh, you know, whatever baby. No,
1: th- it's a 2D image, but it's very. They they changed it. It's very minimalist now.
2: Yeah, he looks a little thinner. Yeah. It's a little sad.
1: He's a little liney or wiry. I don't know. Anyway, the sorcerer, like the sorcerer supreme in this movie or in this segment is Yen Sid, which is Disney spelled backwards.
2: Spelled backwards. And my favorite trivia is that the animators apparently secretly modeled the sorcerer on their boss, uh, Mr. Walt himself.
1: Yes. And Walt (laughs) caught on at the end when at the very end of the segment yensid raises his eyebrow because as i mentioned in the first episode (laughs) that's how walt displayed his displeasure (laughs) he would simply raise his eyebrow and then walk away
2: i'm telling you man this is the tv show they're all writing it and they're all like pissed off at him about something or they're like whatever like let's do this and then they 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 animate it thinking he won't notice and then he he does yeah it's beautiful I love it, but but in, as far let's as let's talk about
1: the segment itself.
2: As far as the segment itself goes, um, I I I don't know. I, I the reason I say it's the most well known, or to me, I feel like it's the most famous and well known image. It's not just Sorcerer Mickey, but everything with the dancing brooms and the buckets. It's incredible. I mean, you're right,
1: though. It is iconic in many ways. This is like, yeah, I take back what I said. This is definitely the most iconic of any of the segments in the movie.
2: It's the one that people. Like I said, even if people aren't familiar with Fantasia, I think that everyone knows the Sorcerer Mickey image. Um, it's the
1: only segment to make it to Fantasia 2000. They literally pulled this and put it into Fantasia 2000.
2: Oh, they did a, a follow-up to this? I never yeah, in, saw it. In 2000. I heard it's actually really good.
1: It's probably the most uh, story-focused of all these segments. Like, the least uh, the least expressionist i guess you know
2: it has an actual narrative in terms of what i was saying before exactly. about the animation moving this is one of the only segments that has the still back it's very it's animated just like pinocchio and snow white where it's got the still background but it's got the characters moving and i mean it an-
1: goes into a space that isn't really a space when he's up on top of the mountain splashing the water
2: right in right, his right.
1: dream like that's something that's very like out there but other than that it's very it's a very focused segment
2: I love this. I love with the fingers and the broom coming to life. It's very, it's, I don't know, like he's iconic. It really is the word.
1: Let's be honest. If we had that magic power to like make something else do our work, we would do it. Come on.
2: It's that's great. Like, oh, of course. Yeah. Oh yeah. He gives them Hillary points and the arms grow and they got the buckets. And like, that's, it's great. I mean. Yeah. It's, yeah.
1: it's witty. It's clever. It's beautiful.
0: It, it's fabulous. It's fabulous.
1: <laughs> I don't know what else we could say about it.
0: When Igor Stravinsky wrote his ballet, The Rite of Spring, his purpose was, in his own words, to express primitive life. And so Walt Disney and his fellow artists have taken him at his word. Instead of presenting the ballet in its original form, as a simple series of tribal dances, they have visualized it as a pageant, as the story of the growth of life on Earth. And that story, as you're going to see it, isn't the product of anybody's imagination. It's a coldly accurate reproduction of what science thinks went on during the first few billion years of this planet's existence. Science, not art, wrote the scenario of this picture.
1: The really the only note I have is that Walt, the quote, direct quote is, "Don't animate them like Pluto or like the dwarves. Animate them like real dinosaurs." So he wanted he wanted it to look real, visceral, like violent. And yeah. I wrote down in my notes that like this is some of the most like realistic animation I've ever seen. The dinosaurs were were literally like watching a a, uh, a documentary on dinosaurs. They moved like obviously we don't know how they moved, but they moved in a realistic way to me.
2: You know, they just um, felt
1: very primitive and like real. It felt like watching a nature documentary.
2: It's it's right. So this is so the note I have from IMDb is that the images of the dinosaurs from right of Spring, the right of Spring segment went on to inspire the uh, primeval world diorama following the Grand Canyon diorama in the Disneyland Railroad. Um, it's obviously an influential, that's the only note there, but it's obviously an influential piece visually. Um, in terms of how the dinosaurs are animated, I'll go. I'll even go as far to say that this is the kind of animation that directly inspired, like *Land Before Time* animation. Like it's kind of, because we only have so much to go off of with how dinosaurs looked, because we have their we have their bones and we have museums, and so we have very clear ideas. Well, of what even dinosaurs since
1: this movie was made. The science has changed a little bit, you know, right. Dean Taylor refers to them as reptiles, but we know now that they're closer related to birds. Correct. So, you know, it, the science is obviously changing a little bit, but as far as like animation style, I'm just saying it, like I said, I don't know how dinosaurs moved, but to me, the way that they made them look, it looked just very real.
2: Right and so what I was saying is that it's a kind of to go off of that it's kind of like I just feel like there's a very clear inspiration that even this has on the way that you and I conceive the the look of dinosaurs yeah because it's kind of like like I said not just land before time but anything with how dinosaurs look it's really the my idea of dinosaurs has never really changed and this is this is how they look. In, in 1940 this is how they looked you know in, in growing up
1: maybe this is where spielberg uh, learned how to make dinosaurs for jurassic park
2: i mean they really <laughs> or where terence malik uh, wanted to do it for the tree of life you know oh, boy.
1: <laughs> right. yeah. I always
2: forget there's dinosaurs but um I,
1: I feel like this segment also directly influenced stanley kubrick because the opening of this segment is not even on earth it's it's uh in space Mm -hmm. like i feel like that's very 2001 a space odyssey just the way you're floating through space
2: yeah sure that's absolutely uh you know there's enough evidence to go off of um what my main note about just in watching it and thinking and as we've been dialoguing about animation specifically is how much of a contrast it is from the bouncy cartoonish mickey and the uh really and even the the whatever the flowy uh, dancing of the mushrooms and the um and the fairies well, yeah, and the nutcracker suite
1: we haven't really done that but like let's take a note uh, like a take a step back here at how far animation grew within such a short period of time mickey mouse mm-hmm. launched in 1928 in steamboat willie and in 12 years you go from steamboat willie to fantasia that is a huge leap. it's a big
2: leap that's a Uh, big leap
1: but uh not all of it was necessarily animated actually but when you uh finally get to earth and it's volcanic volcanic sorry um some of the lava and smoke flow that you see coming up was actually filmed it was someone putting paint cans in water and just filming it which is pretty crazy.
2: It's wild. It's really, it's it's cool to see. It's cool as we've done this even in just three episodes to see how, just how far we've gone. Um, and what's kind of crazy about this segment
1: too, I, I have two parts of what's crazy about this. One, just the influence on children because this is like pretty violent.
2: Well, you know? the t- I have it up here. The T-Rex fight is a lot, you know, it's very intense. <laughs>
1: you literally see the T-Rex kill the other dinosaur like literally yeah. bite its fucking head off
2: this 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 stegosaurus yeah it's not you don't quite see the direct I mean, I mean you see it biting its neck and then you see the tail going insinuating it's dead in the rain it's just very intense
1: yeah and then you literally see all the dinosaurs dying out uh they're migrating to find water and food but on the way you see them become bones that's yeah. like really dark stuff for a child, for a kids movie.
2: As we've talked about, it, and it will come up every episode based on one of our favorite categories. But it's like this is just it's stuff you don't see. It's just stuff you just wouldn't see in a kid in kids content anymore. So yeah. it's not afraid to be brutal and real.
1: This one tells a narrative as well, and it, but it's just like a billion year mar- narrative thrown into like five to ten minutes. I, this is cra- This is like some crazy stuff. And let's take context where it should be too this was made in 1940 okay evolution was a real hot button issue in 1940 Mm -hmm. yeah i mean arguably it still is to some degree but in 1940 you had like i don't remember what year the case was i think it was like 1920 something but there was a supreme court decision based around evolution being taught in a school in like the 20s yeah yeah so for walt disney to like adhere to science this deeply in 1940 is pretty big
2: well it's it's more evidence of how bold was with his decisions because it's kind of like he knew where things were controversial or they would work and not work and not just from a financial or artistic perspective but from a social perspective and a political perspective because it's he's just saying like hey here's how it is and here are the challenging worldviews and this is my depiction of it you know what i mean yeah
1: because even the opening really alludes to the point uh there was the big bang you know it's right. pretty heady stuff
2: i'm actually surprised they didn't open with the dinosaurs but seeing as how long the sequence is and i, don't, I can't imagine it might have lost people and how violent and how real and intense it is it might have lost people early on
1: next is the intermission then they come back and <laughs> they have a uh remember when movies used to have intermissions like
2: oh yeah those how were cool was? cool the last time i saw it was uh was what, H- the Hateful Eight, right? And right. The literal intermission.
1: <laughs> the last time I wish I had it was The Irishman. How he did not feel it necessary to put an intermission in that movie is beyond me.
2: That actually would have been cool, even though most you know most people saw it uh, when it was straight around Thanksgiving. It,
1: yeah, but the people I saw it in a theater. And for three and a half hours, I'm sitting there going, "Fuck, I need to pee. I need to pee." And-
2: <laughs> but not even that, because that—I don't know—we could, you know, cut all this. But it's just even the fact that that movie goes through this the span of time that it does, and the life and the and the decades it goes through, it almost would have made sense to put in uh
1: And here's uh, my bigger point, you know, it's playing in theaters with literally one screen because that's mm-hmm. what Netflix owns. They own a, the Paris theater. They and I saw it at a Broadway theater. Uh, Broadway show theater, but if you're gonna do that, like, you can have an intermission Netflix, okay? Like, you are controlling the entire house, so just next time you make a three and a half hour movie, you know, let let's let them think be. about the people a little
2: bit. Let the, let the people pee.
1: Anyway, back to Fantasia. Like, we come back from intermission, and we don't need to delve too much into it, but we see the uh, pit reassembling their instruments. And Dean Taylor introduces the soundbar, which was pretty... He introduces a soundtrack, sorry, which was pretty crazy. You know, yeah. again, we don't have to get too deep into it, but what a fun, like, little interlude of just watching this line string out to each instrument.
2: It's experimental. It's very... It's more of a reminder that, like, hey, as deep into the story as you think you're getting, this is still... Um, music. It's still like, they still treat it like, hey, it's still a concert. This is still... Uh...
1: You know, it, it's probably like not as cool today because whenever we listen to music now, we can theoretically look up the sound waves that it's admitting. But back then, like, this is like pretty cool to the, to people. Because how often do you really see a sound bar in
2: 1940? <sighs> a, lot, a lot of times. A lot of times. A lot of times, Steven. No, I mean, no, it's cool. Yeah, for its time. That's the whole thing. This whole movie comes back to the same argument. Not the same argument. The same discussion that it's just a, a lot of stuff that was ahead of its time and wasn't probably wasn't appreciated until later.
1: Yeah. So we go to Pastoral Symphony by Beethoven.
0: The symphony that Beethoven called the Pastoral, his sixth, is one of the few pieces of music he ever wrote that tells something like a definite story. He's a great nature lover, and in this symphony, he paints a musical picture of a day in the country. Now, of course, the country that Beethoven described was the countryside with which he was familiar, but his music covers a much wider field than that. And so Walt Disney has given the Pastoral Symphony a mythological setting. And that setting is of Mount Olympus, the abode of the gods.
1: The Pastoral Symphonies was not actually the original song that they had chosen. Like, they designed these characters for a different song. Uh, I don't know what it is. Uh, Pernay's cladus. I don't know. Cletus? Mm -hmm. Something like that. But the music was not big enough for the characters they found, so they changed it to pastoral symphonies. And Ward Kimball, our guy, he found the segment extremely difficult uh, to do because he didn't know how to really do the anatomy of these characters, how much sure. do you show, how much do you not show, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because this gets very uh, risque. You're dealing with centaurs who are, you know, maybe showing a little too much boob, maybe not enough, depends how you see it. You know, the cupids <laughs> flying around, do you show peen? Do you not show peen? Like. <laughs>
2: 1940 man. People 1940. Were, were people cool with peeing? Were they not? You know what I mean? It's... Yeah even the
1: centaurs. <laughs> do you walk around with that horse dung or like? Uh...
2: I don't know man. Could people handle it? I don't know.
1: Yeah so they found it very difficult at first to like conceptualize the characters because again how much do you show? How much do you not show? Mm-hmm. The segment is uh, the characters are clearly based around like Greek mythology. You know you have fauns, you have cupids you have zeus in there apollo yeah a big you know some of the greek gods you have the drunk guy who was a god i can't remember his name
2: there's a lot happening
1: the drunk guy with his uh trusty steed the donkey that he makes out with
2: yeah.
1: some wild stuff
2: some wild wild stuff do you have
1: any definitely, opinion on the movie definitely greek. Uh, segment
2: no, I'm kind of just, well, I have the, what I have, like, the clip I have is the only real note that the, I think to discuss is I have the uh, censored and uncensored version uh, that are split.
1: Oh, yeah.
2: Because that's, I think, the most, I mean, the segment itself, uh, so the, se- not to you know, not be present, the se- the segment itself is obviously, you know, it's, I, it's almost something that would have, I, I guess, inspired Hercules. I'm looking at with the Greek, with the columns oh. and the.
1: Yeah, I uh, thought you were going somewhere else with this because we should bring up the
2: fact that... that, No, that was a separate note. But yes, what I was saying is the only thing I really feel to bring up is, and it's a popular trivia note, is that, well, I'll read the trivia note first, is that um, in this segment, there was originally a scene showing stereotyped black assistant centaurs shining the hooves of the white centaurs, uh, chief of these being Sunflower with a very stereotypical look. Uh, Big red lips, wild, messy hair. Not until 1969, uh, in the re-release, was it thought to be objectionable, and all uh, subsequent releases until 1980 had an abrupt cut at this point. Every release since, uh, after 1990, uh, includes the scene, but with the section blown up so that it only shows the faces of the white female centaurs. Yeah, Um,
1: probably for the best. uh, It (laughs) got pretty... Honestly this whole segment gets a little dicey with the whole race thing because i i made a note of this too each centaur is literally finding their mate based on like the color it looks more like brothers and sisters are fucking than like they're choosing a mate you know <laughs> i don't
0: want
2: to say it's the strangest segment but i guess it's the most dicey it's the most um there's a lot of characters here that look like they were in they influence like alice in wonderland and um, there's a lot of car. There's a lot. Of- it's mostly the gr- Greek influence, but that the little trivia bit I said about the censored and the uncensored, um, I guess, is interesting because it's as we said would come up probably every episode. Is that it was a different time and just yeah. Um,
1: this is definitely the most uh, dicey of all of the segments, and not that I have a ranking, but this would definitely fall on the lower end. Yeah. Of the spectrum for me not that That's, i think it's, it's bad i just feel as though i don't know i it doesn't click with me the way that some of the other ones do
2: i i agree it's experimental
1: I'm, in a way that i am just like uh i don't know
2: yeah between the um uh, almost nudity and then the you know the racial characters it's kind of like where 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 are we going with it all and it's kind of just i mean it's a it is a great sequence um with the music and all that but it's just I don't know. I don't know how much there is to really <laughs> go off about, it except what it was saying at the time.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I guess it was a basis for Hercules because they have Zeus in it and everything.
2: There's a lot of imagery that looks like between the fauns and the, I don't know the um sorry. the Cupids. What is the goat? Um,
1: no, what,
2: the like goat. Philat- was. Um, yeah, that's a fawn. G- yeah, yeah, okay. So these um a lot of the imagery looks like it would have directly inspired uh, Hercules, but. I I, I
1: like Hercules more.
2: (laughs) Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. But uh, I digress. Let's uh, let's get into
0: the next one. Now we're going to do one of the most famous and popular ballets ever written. The Dance of the Hours from Ponchielli's opera La Gioconda. It's a pageant of the hours of the day. We see first a group of dancers in costumes to suggest the delicate light of dawn. Then a second group enters, dressed to represent the brilliant light of noonday. As these withdraw, a third group enters in costumes that suggest the delicate tones of early evening. Then a last group, all in black, the somber hours of the night. Suddenly, the orchestra bursts into a brilliant finale, in which the hours of darkness are overcome by the hours of light. All this takes place in the great hall with its garden beyond, of the palace of Duke Aldisa, a Venetian nobleman. I find
1: it strange that this is the one that follows pastoral symphonies because they're both very similar in the sense I that, like, say that they are almost, uh, I don't know, the, obviously there's a difference between Greek mythology and the anapomorphic animals that are in this segment, yet it kind of feels relatively the same because maybe the animation style doesn't contrast as much as earlier segments do. But uh, let's get into the actual production of it. So this was like a parody on actual ballet. Of the uh, Dance of the Hour was supposedly like an overdone ballet. So they're like making fun of the fact of this, that they're doing it at all.
2: Well, immediately, and I just, like I said, I have the clips up here just to have it while we're talking, but it's yeah. just even the way that it's stagey. And you've got the hippo in the little skirt being chased by the gators with like the headdress it's immediately comical and they got the spotlight and so it immediately feels in con like because like i know what you're saying like because i agree like the the way it's animated is very similar um uh to the pastoral symphonies thank you for the past it's very similar to the pastoral symphony but like it's Immediately, way more comical and lighthearted, and almost just because it's with animals and they got these hippos with ballet shoes on. It's like well, it's, it's definitely absurd. more
1: comical. Uh, Ward Kimball, uh, our guy Ward Kimball, who we keep going back to, yeah, 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 he actually he didn't work on this segment. It was this one was actually led by Norm Ferguson. Uh, but Ward Kimball actually th- said in a behind the scenes thing that this is like a quote unquote perfect fo- animated scene, like he thinks that this is like perfectly done. And and to make it, they actually uh, like created a ballet of this. They brought in dancers to do it and like spent rigorous amount of time, like trying to make sure that they like copy each muscle movement of the ballet. This is like very visceral, real ballet, just done by ostriches and elephants and hippos and gators. gators. gators.
2: well, it's very funny that you your first noticed that it was like a satire on typical ballet because that's really, literally what it looks like, the way they high kick and the way they spin around and they tiptoe. It's just very it's, They literally it's very open funny.
1: with an ostrich opening up her legs, which is like <laughs> some wild stuff.
2: It's, it's very comical. It's, it almost looks like the kind of stuff that would directly influence uh, like Looney Tunes, even though merry Melodies was already a thing. Um, I don't think
1: it was at this what? point.
2: Mary Melodies was in the thirties.
1: Oh, okay, cool.
2: So, and that's a contrast, you know, earlier, cause I know that, cause I looked it up, but while well, we were talking, but I uh, started technically started 31. Um, but it didn't, I mean, if it inspired, it's not, I mean, it's very similar, but this was really the, I think this just took it to a new scale. Yeah. Um,
1: as far as this segment goes, I know we use this line a lot, but I appreciate it more than I necessarily like it.
2: Sure. I feel the same way.
1: Uh, I think that it's really well crafted animation, but if I'm going to go back to watch any of the segments, this is not the one I leap for. No. uh, I do think it has iconic iconography like Sorcerer's Apprentice. Like everyone knows the gator carrying the hippo.
2: Right, 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 right.
1: That's like as classic as it gets. But overall, it's not one I'm going to go back to all the time. And. Just watch for fun on like like if I'm looking up a segment on YouTube, this is not the one I'm gonna look up.
2: That's a really lonely night, Stephen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, gotta get the juices flowing here.
2: <laughs> oh my god, so many <laughs> so many juices. Um it's yeah, no, I, I I think as far as iconography, I think it's a good point. Next to Sorcerer's Apprentice is just, you know, it's definitely the more well known visual segment, but
1: well you ready to get into the next one
0: i am the last number on our fantasia program is a combination of two pieces of music so utterly different in construction and mood that they set each other off perfectly the first is a night on bald mountain by one of russia's greatest composers Modest Mussorgsky. the second is franz schubert's world famous ave maria Musically and dramatically, we have here a picture of the struggle between the profane and the sacred. Bald Mountain, according to tradition, is the gathering place of Satan and his followers. Here on Walpurgis Night, which is the equivalent of our own Halloween, the creatures of evil gather to worship their master. Under his spell, they dance furiously until the coming of dawn and the sounds of church bells send the infernal armies linking back into their abodes of darkness. And then we hear the Ave Maria with its message of the triumph of hope and life over the powers of despair and death.
1: Walt, Walt said that he wanted to unleash, uh, like a battle. He wanted an uneasy segment, like a battle between evil and good. They got Vlad Bill Taitla, who we've talked about before. He did Stromboli. Uh, he came in and did the Chernabog, the, uh, devil in this segment that's cool yeah and when he was asked later on how did you do what you did for the Chernobyl? because it's let's be real this character is like so well designed Titla said I imagined I was a mountain you see and made of stone but but could think and move I did like that's it's crazy he literally said like essentially like I became a mountain. How would a mountain move? This is how a mountain would move.
2: I mean, that's a great way of putting it. You feel like it's a really powerful creature and a very, um, uh, I don't know. You just feel like you feel like it has a lot of power. This this character, and so I think that's a great way of describing it.
1: There's such a just like stone like quality to his movements and just power in everything he's doing.
0: Um,
2: um yep. I, I don't know if I sure have further along, that the, I guess the segment was inspired by the witches sabbath which is a story I I guess uh, I mean from back in the day that they Yeah had. it's a
1: story from uh I believe the Czech Republic but I could be wrong and it is about the devil and his worshipers uh dancing on a mountain
2: yeah, but, they wanted to go with, I guess, something really dark for it, and that was kind of like where the source material well, that's what material I was about to say.
1: From. It's kind of interesting. Like, this is a very interesting uh, choice for Disney as well, because this is something that would not be chosen today. You know, you're not going to touch the devil Uh, in this regard.
0: I know.
2: It, it's a, it's a shame, but...
1: This the segment gets really fucked up. We'll get into the next part after, but let's just focus on the Chernobyl and the satanic ritual. Mm
0: -hmm. This
1: is like some real scary stuff, especially for a kid. This is like literal close to devil worship as I have ever seen in a Disney segment. He's literally raising the dead, dancing with devils.
2: It's It's wild. Wild stuff. Um, The top note I have about it is that uh, even after more than 60 years of its release, uh, Disney still receives complaints from parents... Claiming that night on Bold Mountain uh, sequence terrified their children. <laughs> I don't doubt it.
1: Like there are segments when you literally see like spirits' heads flying at the camera, shouting, you "No!" Know? Yeah,
2: it's, it's really yeah, it's good. It's very dark. I'm I'm as you know I as you figure I'm really about it.
1: <laughs> Not only is it dark though, but it's just also so well done like even the little demons dancing and being cast into the fire it it's beautifully done
2: yeah um as as far as more comparison to bring up hercules again i couldn't help but think of the swimming pool at the end in hades in the the underworld um there's the ghost-like apparitions if you will kind of like they have a very flowy way like a a stereotypical ghost but they're like really terrifying in the way that they move and they're kind of all move almost in like a a cloudy river, it looks very similar. Hercules was what came to mind when I was watching.
1: No, that's pretty spot on.
2: Um, That's how I felt. I felt like there were clear inspirations for um, however dark Disney would get later on, which as we're seeing is probably, this is the darkest it would get. But at least the imagery I feel like carried on, at least for me, like for it to trigger those kind of memories and compare, I guess, show the influence of that even though you don't see much darkness in Disney movies anymore, um, that the influence is still there.
1: Yeah. So uh, Night on Bold Mountain blends into Ave Maria, which is not, they're not written by the same composer. Mm-hmm. And they're clearly two very different uh, uh, different types of music. Uh, this is one of, the, the Ave Maria sequence is obviously a vigil That's going toward the tree, which, you know, opened the forest into like the heavens, which wasn't originally the case. Originally, it was supposed to lead to a church, to a cathedral, like a beautiful Mm -hmm. cathedral into a cross. But Disney scrapped that because it got too religious. You can't, like, that's a no-no.
2: Can't touch too much religion.
1: (laughs) No. So they changed it to a tree instead. But this was one of the most elaborate... Uh, shots that has ever been done by Disney. Uh, they filmed continuously. It was filmed continuously by nine men over six days and nights using the horizontal multi-plane camera. They set up the entire hundred and fifty foot, hundred and fifty-four foot length Disney soundstage was taken up by this project because of how long the vigil is. Mm-hmm. It's just insane. How long? Like how much meticulous nature went into making this pan shot actually happen? Because they literally filmed a panning shot through the multi camera.
2: I mean, it's a, it's just I don't know. It's more of just not to repeat myself. It's just more of amazing of how much of a technical achievement it is.
1: Yeah, like there are people today who still can't do uh, long shots on regular cat like. Just doing it regularly, and Disney did it through an animated movie. That's fucking crazy.
2: Yeah, it's why. I mean, the amount of work. I don't know. It's like I, like I had said earlier in the episode. It's there's like almost no words for it. Like you can't put it into words, or you just have to see it and hear it for yourself.
1: What's interesting is, it's one of those things that's so simple and yet complex. This segment feels very simple because it's literally just a visual pan but it's so complicated
2: okay no no it's um well it's one of those things that it's uh i don't know what the quote is that less is oh less is more i guess is more of it but it's just um it's just a because it's simplistic it works there needs to be like it's funny when you look at the demon uh bald mountain and all the visuals, the chaotic visuals, and the fire and the skeletons, and then you look at this one long tracking shot here. And it's a contrast that's a great way to kind of, like, signify the end. Or, you know... um, It's a great way to kind of just, like, ease out of everything.
1: Yeah, because the movie doesn't cut back to the orchestra or anything. It just ends with Ave Maria. It's a very...
2: I think it's a very unique way, because what it's doing is it's kind of like... Trying to think of an example i don't know it's kind of like it's 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 um the closest thing to um an epilogue it's a it's a legitimate epilogue because it's kind of like you're in any show or any book or, or or some movies it's like it's like you when you're watching a lot or listening to a lot you know you're experiencing a lot of story or a lot of visuals a lot of different feelings and emotions all of a sudden it's kind of like all right now let us close out it's kind of like a a, a fitting just taking its time it's kind of like hey here's the end you've experienced all this chaos and now it's now it's over
1: yeah it's almost it's almost the epitome of a disney ending too because mm-hmm. you're watching this dark segment before uh with the night on bold mountain and you're mm-hmm. ending on the happy note like the light will out and then that's how it ends the light one and you get to leave go home go away
2: yeah no it's good it's a great way of ending it
1: yeah so you ready to get into the categories
2: Oh yeah, let's dive in.
1: As always, we have Best Song, Best Animated Sequence, Best Voice Actor, although due to the limited nature this week around, we decided to just go with Best Character, uh, Most Traumatizing Moment, and that's it. So Josh, tell me, what is your best song?
2: Obviously, um, these
1: are not Disney songs, but you know.
2: Um, as far as, so I have them listed based on the segment, I'll the actual names of the songs.
1: Mm-hmm. well the names of the segments are the names of the songs
2: that's the there you go. It's, well there it is so it's just <laughs> how much homework I'm, i've done you know so but basically i have the uh none of this is going to be a shock i have the sorcerer's apprentice as a runner-up mm-hmm. the sorcerer's apprentice i just feel like is every as we said it's more are really iconic in the way that it's not everything it just visually represents but the song itself is very catchy the best song i have is the uh nine and bold mountain i feel like it's one of the most well-known in terms of its dark themes it's something that's been pretty and stereotyped in almost in many animated programs we watched growing up including looney tunes and whatever it was a it's a theme that i feel like when you hear it you think like whatever horror and and dark but it's it's something that's been embedded in us as children. And maybe it was this movie, I guess that started it, but
1: many a program. Yeah. That's,
2: that's my pick though. So um, I
1: went with the Sorcerer's Apprentice night on bold mountain will appear numerous times throughout this list. So I figured I'll give a different movie a shot here. The Sorcerer's Apprentice is, uh, you know, like I said before, it's just an iconic segment, but it's mostly iconic because of its music. Uh, if I, I mean, I actually do listen. I'm a loser. I listen to the soundtrack often, specifically when I'm writing, because I just feel like it's a good it's a good background. And I'm Nothing always, wrong I, with that, man. No. Nah. And whenever I get to the song, I'm always, I, I don't know, it puts a pep in my step or a pep in my hands when I'm writing. Let's move on. Best, yeah, best. animated sequence.
2: Yep.
1: So, Night on Bold Mountain for me. Uh, and Ave Maria. There, there was just like, Obviously, there were other... Every segment is beautiful in their own right. I can't denigrate any of them, but I just feel like Night on Bold Mountain is a pitch-perfectly animated segment. Everything is just so, like, beautifully done. The Chernabog is crafted so meticulously, and... I don't know, I'm a horror guy, so it plays, it tickles my fancy in that regard. It's it's bold for Disney. It's something that, like, I don't think they will ever do again, ever. Nope. And because of its uniqueness, I I had to pick it. And the Ave um, Maria thing is just beautiful as well.
2: So yeah. I on. mean, as we were just saying, it's a great way to, to close it out. Um... <laughs> sometimes i think our similarities are some or maybe our worst traits um between being a horror guy and you know whatever and just uh a cynical adult i don't know whatever it is you want to call it is that Ball mount was my my pick um everything you said it just sums up perfectly um but so i'll go with the runner-up just to describe just to touch upon was the nutcracker suite uh-huh. I, I think everything between what we were saying between the fairies the mushrooms and the fish and just the way it's done and like i said uh, had said earlier about the way the animation is constantly moving. It's very, like I had said the word earlier, challenging. Um, I had mentioned *Rite of Spring* initially just because of how elaborate it is. But that's that was my runner-up. Um, but I'm gonna. will stick with the Nutcracker Suite to talk. I mean, *Bald well, Mountain* was my pick, but um, Nutcracker Suite is the one I'll focus on in terms of being animated. Um, just like we said, the way it flows with the characters and the way it plays out is very unique. And like I said, must have. Been a pain in the ass to animate, so yeah. Um, gonna stay, so, gonna, st- yeah.
1: So best, uh, like I said, we're not doing best voice actor because the award would automatically go to Walt Disney who played Mickey Mouse. That is the only voice in the entire uh, movie.
2: If you're not counting the uh, what is it? The opening, the um, the conductor.
1: Well, I didn't count him as a voice because we actually the- he's he's a person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, anyway we're just going to go with best character overall so what is your pick josh
2: uh runner-up was the brooms <laughs> <laughs> uh i dig the brooms man i just think that they're cool um the, the brooms are pretty good the brooms are pretty good i, I like
1: know. how they just grew arms it was cool Somehow. he pointed
2: he did two points and then they grew two arms and it was i liked them they, they made me smile of yeah, course and then
1: they splintered and they just like grew back all of a sudden it was I like them. I just
2: thought as far as characters, it was very unique. Um I have to go with the Chernobyl as my best character. It's obviously gonna be very predictable and maybe boring. Yeah. (laughs) So I just feel like come on. I mean, how often do you see the 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 devil like that in a I don't know, it's cool, man. I I like him. I'm a big fan.
1: I have the same answer, but I'll throw a couple (laughs) of uh I'll throw a couple of others out there just because why not? Mm -hmm. Uh I forget the name of the god, but it's the god of wine in the uh, Greek mythology segment. Um,
2: I know who exactly who you're talking yeah, about. The, yeah. fat,
1: the fat guy who makes out with his donkey, just because like <laughs> it was really funny. Uh, the mushrooms were pretty funny. They mm-hmm. were pretty good. They
2: were runner-ups for me.
1: And I'll even just throw out the ostriches and hippos and alligators, just because- I don't they're not necessarily like individual characters but I just feel like they're iconic
2: there's a lot of expressionism going on with, like I mean in their literal faces like they're like very cartoonish they for lack of a better word like they're uh, the way their eyes move and their mouths move like they're very like I said it felt very like an inspired Looney Tunes uh, yeah. in a way
1: so most traumatic moment <laughs> I feel like again this isn't going to be a shock so uh, J- Josh is definitely going to take the same answer as me so i'll just throw a curveball out i'll say rite of spring for all the reasons we said before uh the dinosaur is going the dinosaur fight is brutal it's like brutal Uh, the only thing that's missing is blood uh and the dinosaurs themselves are just very like visceral and real and as the segment keeps going on, they're dying out. You see the skeletons just emerge. It's
2: just, very, it's sad.
1: It's dark and sad and yeah. kind of fucked up for kids. So, yeah. but Josh is definitely going to take my answer. So go for Folks, it.
2: Listen, if you can take anything away from the last hour plus change, just watch the night of bold mountain segment. It's all I'm going to say. It's really,
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: There's uh, wait, uh, There's nothing else to be said about it.
1: No, there's it's, nothing else that can be said because... It's
2: really... We're just going to go around in circles. It's,
1: it's literally the devil. <laughs> it's,
2: it's mortifying. It's hell and the skeletons and the souls and everything we've been It's literally the saying.
1: devil playing with souls in front of your eyes. It's, it's as fucked up as it's going to get.
2: It um, makes me wish that they, there would be more movies in general. Specific, sorry. More animated movies in general that would tackle this kind of visual and audio kind of blend of of terror because it's really just like, I mean, there's, there's a lot of kid friendly Halloween or horror based kind of kids' movies that have been pretty good. Um, a lot of like a Studios, like they play, they, they, they dabble with darkness a little bit, but it's like to really see a big horrifying musical number with the devil in hell and all that, like you said, it's something we'll probably never see again, not in this context. So I can't, I especially just can't, not from Disney. I just can't stress it enough how. Much of tickles my fancy, like you said, as a horror person, but it'll just it's a challenging you know what it is it's just um, we're not're not used to seeing animated sequences like this, because in our gener- by the time our generation got around, like there wasn't really stuff like this going on in animated movies, so
1: no it it's just a rare and beautiful and visceral sequence.
2: So it's amazing. Let's get into <laughs> our
1: final thoughts overall. Do you want to Do
2: take it. it away, Josh? Um, yeah, for sure. Um, uh, I mean, we really we've said it all, but I'll just kind of reiterate, and I'll throw in some new stuff. But it's it's this is I said this is perhaps the most unique combination of animation and music ever depicted on film. Um, the my my main note is that it was unique in the sense that it felt more like the film. Was being staged to the music rather than the other way around, um, making it almost, which makes it feel like a living, breathing soundtrack that you can see. And from the minds of Disney, it's an entire world of blended animated elements that are. Um, um, sorry. From the minds of Disney, it's um, an entire world of blended elements um, from like, kind of like geniuses, like the geniuses like um like the like the masterminds of 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 animation so it's like it's almost like the perfect combo and this movie kind of did things for me that like as we talked about the very first episode it's like it's very hard for me to get into animated movies as an adult it's just kind of like okay like i whatever like i get it and like i as i said it from the end of snow white and even last week with pinocchio it's kind of like I am finding an appreciation for them more than myself actually enjoying them. But it's kind of like I really admire them. And this is like one of the most admirable uh, experiences I've really ever had with an animated movie as of late. There were segments of this that I really found myself like itching to move on. Like the Pastoral Symphony in particular, I admired it. But it was just, even at eight minutes, I was like, or however long it is, I'm kind of like, okay, I'm over it. Like I'm really... I just, I was really not invested um, versus like the Rite of Spring where I'm like, was very invested. I thought that was like, cool. So it was like to see these back and forth, it's tugging at my heartstrings of like seeing Mickey apprentice. I was like, all right, it's the cutesy, friendly family, Disney, that everyone loves, but also like, I get it. Like, I appreciate it. And then we get like the fact that it ends at night on bull mountain and Ave Maria. I was like, okay, like I get it. Like this has been building to this point. And so the way it made me feel, it's like, they're really not, not watching a story. It really is, like as we've said, it's like watching an animated concert. It's just cool. Um, this is probably – I'll leave it at this because I could literally just talk about this a lot. It's probably one of the most respectable animated movies I've ever seen in my life. As far as it being, like, one of my favorite, I, I mean, I don't know. It's, I guess it's a toss-up. But as far as, like, one of the best animated movies I've seen, I mean, I, I think it's up there because it's just – because of what it is and how experimental it is it's just there's there's so little like it so i'll, yeah. I'll leave it at that i really admire this movie. so just
1: a lot. like piggyback off of what you're saying yeah, yeah, yeah. i just literally i'm picking backing i just feel yeah, yeah, yeah. like this movie this animated movie is in a different league than any other animated movie that i've ever seen yep it is it was obviously uh one of my pick of the week so this is the first pick of the week that ever made it to like a full episode. So haha, ha, pretty good. Um, this is uh, like, I don't have a list like this, but it is arguably one of my like 20 favorite movies of all time, simply because of how much I admire it. It is one of the most experimental and thought provoking and riskiest movies that I have ever seen. Walt literally put it all on the line for this movie and like I said it didn't pan out and there was a huge I'm not saying there's a downswing by any stretch of the imagination I do like the movies that follow but there is a clear deviation here where I think that the golden age kind of just ends I know that the golden age technically ends at Bambi but as Josh and I are gonna go, go through like like I said, they're not bad the next couple movies, but nothing that we do henceforth is going to compete with this particular movie and how just bold and brilliant it is. And like I said, to just be a fly on the wall when they're coming up with concepts for this movie would have been just amazing. Because it's one of the most imaginative, imaginative things I've ever seen. Like Josh said, there are things that are like kind of cutesy about it at certain points, but even the cutesy stuff, like the Sorcerer's Apprentice, is charming. Or something cutesy like uh, the dancing ostriches still has like the raw, sorry, the raw uh, ballet talent behind it. There's so much work and energy that went into each frame. Like I said, it took three to four hours to do each frame of this movie. It is 124 move. Uh, minute movie and that's cut down because of the uh racial proclivities I, i'll take that out of this conversation just for a minute but you know a 124 minute movie like each second has 24 frames so that's like 3 to 4 hours per frame that's crazy how much Literal work went into this
2: blood sweat and tears
1: <laughs> yeah uh you know as far as the racial stuff goes disney has since removed it that is a good thing and it now has a uh warning in front of it you know just saying you know watch out for this stuff which i appreciate as well i'm not one of these people who's about censoring but a warning is fine not that anything yeah, in this movie is like entirely it's like, not eh. i you know better to far- put the
2: warnings i i would rather take a warning over a censor any 100 you know? percent. yeah
1: like what we're going to get to next week is where the line kind of gets drawn very far. Like that's like, so this week it's, you know, it it's peppered in,
2: you know, in the house. Fly. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh man. Oh, but no, I'm sorry. Keep finishing. Your thoughts. No.
1: So we'll get to it. We'll get to that next week. But as far as Fantasia goes, I don't think I can say anything more. We can't. It,
2: we've we've uh, splooged enough over this thing. <laughs> yeah.
1: It, just a masterpiece. So then let's go to our pick of the week.
2: Let's do it, baby.
1: Uh, for my pick of the week, I'm going to go with the only other movie that I think uses classical music to the advantage that it, this movie does, which is 2001 A Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick's ah. movie.
2: That's a good choice. Do you not picked that as a pick of the week yet? I don't think so. Mind I know you. I
1: picked Dr. Strangelove.
2: Yes, you did for sure.
1: Um, I mean, there's not much I could say about 2001 A Space Odyssey that hasn't already been said. I'm just gauging from Fantasia like this desire to throw a movie out there that blends classical music perfectly with what is on the frame. And 2001 A Space Odyssey is the only thing that even comes close it's again one of my favorite movies so just beautifully and meticulously crafted uh and i I, again there's not much i could say about 2001: a space odyssey that hasn't already been said so of course i'm sorry dave i'm afraid i can't do that so that's my pick of the week go enjoy a space odyssey go get to jupiter and beyond
2: the great pick that's a fabulous pick in fact
1: yeah what's your pick
2: very different than mine um matt stone and trey parker's classic south park bigger longer and uncut
1: a little different was maybe not not as uh, racially insensitive
2: was not going to be my pick at all and then i get to ball mountain and i'm like hang on here i'm like there's music i was like it's a depiction of hell I was like, there's a, you know, this depiction of evil in a sense, and I don't know, that movie came to mind <laughs> and I don't know why, no but I Sadam guess the... Saddam Hussein
1: in Fantasia,
2: <laughs> There's no, I mean, yeah, right. It would have been great to see a little floppy, flappy head of uh, a. Hey, guy. <laughs> Relax, guy. Relax, um, guy. Oh, no, yeah, of course, it's commentary on censorship uh, and America and all that. Uh, I don't really see a comparison of Fantasia. It's kind of a reach. Uh, other than that, they're both musicals. And that they both depict, depict hell in their own way. Um, and it's always
1: a good thing to blame Canada. I mean, come on. I mean, Those come Canadians on. and...
2: It was just an obvious choice. So um, a little change of pace from uh, last, my last couple of weeks of Land Before Time and uh, American Tale and whatever Don Bluth films I can come up with. But uh,
1: uh, Yeah, I, a couple more Jew jokes in the South Park just, movie just, than uh, American <laughs> and, and American Tale.
2: So just a couple more. Not many, but just a couple. Um, and so, yeah, I'll just uh, change the pace for animated movies. I, um, I'm going to stick to my guns and I'm going to go with it.
1: That's a good one. That is a good one. You, so, uh, I think that's where we'll end it. Uh, as always, you can follow me on Instagram at Mr. Filmart and you can follow the podcast at Whose Filmography on instagram as well
2: hey so we, we finally here? made it folks after, after both, weeks and weeks and weeks of teasing this thing it's finally here uh yes Stephen and i uh we'll post pa-
1: our drawings on there to announce yeah. episode launches uh unfortunately because of instagram i can't add clickable links into the bios of each pod but
2: well, you can have the link to the show in the main bio though
1: i have the link to the show yeah. in the main bio but nice. it's not the same instagram Get on that. Like, what are you doing?
2: Maybe one of these days we'd make a Twitter, but I'm not a big Twitter person at all. I don't really.
1: No, Twitter. Donald Trump Trump destroyed Twitter forever. It's a
2: little too toxic for me.
1: Uh, That's the problem with all these social media sites. They're all too toxic for me. I can't do it. Except Instagram, because uh, Instagram is just easy. I post a picture, and I only see pictures I want to see. If I see shit I don't like, like a spider uh, attacking... Uh, some other smaller insect I don't have to watch it like why is this even coming up on my feed I don't understand I never wanted to watch this anyway (laughs) I go off we will see you next week when we ride the elephant in Dumbo